0: it is on. Yes, now it is on. Good morning again. Uh, so excited to be starting this, uh, this brand new series this morning, The King and His Kingdom. How many of you are excited about this series? Yeah. Uh, just really looking forward to, uh, to, to digging into the Word of God and to understand really who Jesus is as King over our lives. And uh, there's so much we can learn from, from Scripture about this, about this topic. And um, we, we, I want to build this morning on uh, what, we, what I shared about last week. Um, last week, um, uh, I, I talked about family. That God wants us to be a part of family. That God always wanted a family. And if you weren't there, uh, make sure you watch that message. Uh, you can find it on YouTube or on, on uh, Instagram. Sorry, on Instagram, YouTube or on um, uh, Facebook. It's probably shared there as well and on Vimeo, on the website, of course. So uh, watch that because um, I think in the in the coming. A few weeks and months, you'll see more and more what it means to truly be a church family uh, instead of an organization that, we, that we're that we a part of or a, a building that we go to or an institution that we're, we're registered to as members. No, church is so, so much different. Church is really God's family here on the earth. And I want to kind of unpack that in these coming few weeks, and we'll have a few guest speakers involved in that as well, and it's going to be a powerful, powerful series, so make sure you don't miss any of the messages these coming few weeks, because it will really help you build a strong, strong foundation to your faith. I truly believe that. So, um, so what I really believe when I look at the words of the Bible is that uh, from the beginning of time, that God always wanted to be king over the world. He always wanted to be king over the world. It was always his plan, and um, you know something got mixed up there. Some, something, you know, some issues started happening. But he always had that uh, desire to be king over his, uh, the whole of creation, um, and not through manipulation, not through power, uh, power play, or po- politics, or any of, of, of that. No, he wanted to be king over his over the universe and over the world through relationship. God wanted to work through relationship, through a family relationship with his subjects. We get to be children of the most high God. And out of that family relationship, he builds his kingdom. And that's a little bit of a problem for most of us because when we think of of human kings and when we think of, you know, um, any other people who have power, um, we get a real weird and wrong picture of who God is as as the king of the universe, as the king of the world. Um, Because sometimes we think of, you know, uh, we think God is like, uh, like a mean God he's ready to beat us up or something like that. That's not the picture that the Bible truly gives about who, who God is and how he, how he actually wants to be king over this whole world. And I want to help you today to kind of see, to kind of show you um, what, he has in, what he has in mind. Uh, but when you look at the Bible, when you look at the earliest pages of Scripture, you see that uh, there um, have been a couple of issues that happened in human history. There have been a couple of rebellions that basically took place throughout human history, uh, that uh, basically uh, through those rebellions, humankind said, no, I, we don't want you to be king over, over us. We, we, we want to dis- decide ourselves um, how we live our lives. We want to uh, make our own decisions rather than involving God in those decisions and allowing him to really be, be Lord over, over everything. And just going back to the first uh, couple of chapters of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, I think most of us, we know the story of Adam and Eve. And I believe that there were a, liter- a literal couple in the world that, um, that were there. And, and we can all trace our lineage back to them. But these two people, they, they were supposed to live in family relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. That's the picture that you see painted in those first chapters. But then somehow, you know, God tells them to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, um, and he says, you know, you can eat of any tree in the garden, just not this one. But then what happens is that uh, the serpent comes, and it's actually, you know, a uh, a spiritual being there that is trying to deceive Adam and Eve to actually eat from that tree, and to basically tell them, hey, you know, once you eat from this fruit, you'll get knowledge of good and evil. You don't need God anymore. You could be your own God. And it kind of sounded attractive to them, so they ended up eating from from this tree, and um, instead of having God as their moral compass, they wanted it to be their own moral compass. And pretty much all the pain and all the suffering you see in the world today is a result of that wrong decision that our foref- forefathers made. You see in um, Genesis chapter 6, the flood, you know, the, basically the time of Noah when God tells Noah to build an build a ark to escape the flood. But in in that time, uh, there's another human rebellion that takes place, and it actually is described like this in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And somehow, um, Noah found favor with God, because he actually longed to, to be with God and have a relationship with God. And... So he, build, he decides to destroy the whole earth all of humankind because of this rebellion, Hopefully, that, hoping that it would get better afterwards. Well, it did for a while until, you know, chapter 11 in Genesis arrives. And you see here the story of the Tower of Babel. There's a whole lot you could say about that, and this is where all the languages in the world come from, but there, there's a real important spiritual meaning behind that story. And what's happening right there. And actually the word Babel is actually related to the word Babylon, the great city. It's also, and it talks about this anti-God, anti-Eden, anti-Zion, anti-Christ um, world system that rules the world at this moment. So when you, when you hear about Babel or Babylon or when, when the New Testament speaks about Rome, it's all the same Uh, world system that is trying to actually create chaos and hold people captive in ways of life that are actually destructive to themselves. It's interesting when you you look at the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, you see that in verse verse 3 that that the people who built the tower, that they used, and I don't know how to pronounce this in English, so you got to help me, bitumen, bitumen, bitumen Um, in Dutch, bitumen, right? And they used that to waterproof the tower. Why would they waterproof the tower? Because they still remember the story of the flood. They're like, well, if if there's another flood that comes, we want to be protected for the flood, so let's just waterproof the tower. Super interesting to see that. We do what we want. We don't care what God wants. We want to do what we want, and we want to be protected for, 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 for His judgment, And then verse 4, it says that they wanted to make a name for themselves, instead of making God's name known over the whole earth, which was the intention that God had. And then, you know, when you remember the story of Adam and Eve, that God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's what God told them. And instead of just filling the whole earth and spreading out over the whole earth to make God, take God's influence there. They decided to stick in one place. And they said, hey, let's bring God's influence down right here where we want to be. Let's, let's basically make God our servant rather than we being his servants. Let's bring his influence down in one place. And we just stay there. We just stay right here. And that's why it was, you know, this tower was like a temple tower. And, and so they really believed that God would come down in that, in that place right there. And God wouldn't have it because they went, went into directly to God's command. And in seeing this rebellion that takes place here, God decides to choose one man and his family. And his name is Abram. And Abram will be the forefather of the nation of Israel later on. But he chooses to kind of leave the other nations at this point, leave all the other people, he, he chose to basically disinherit all the other people, all the other nations, and he would decide to go, go on with just one man, with, with Abraham, and to basically continue the family line right there and to, to, um, to fulfill his plan of being king over the whole world through them, through Abraham. Same thing happens in Exodus if you talk about human rebellions. You know, God leads his people out of Egypt, out of another place that symbolizes the world system the anti-Eden, anti-God system. And, and as he takes them out of Egypt and leads them into the desert with Moses as their leader, the, the people rebel against not only against Moses, but against God as well. You see, another human rebellion. The most interesting one that I want to highlight right now that you may have never thought of is actually in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. This is where the people of Israel, they're like, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to be just like them. We want to have our own king, just like those nations have. And in making the decision, they basically rejected God as their king. It says this in in verse 7. Obey the voice of the people. This is what God said to to Samuel, the prophet. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And I believe that that's the story of humankind. As humans, we have basically rejected God as being king over the world. He, we rejected God as being king over our lives. We rejected God to be king over our families. But that's exactly what God wants to restore because he's a good king. He loves us. He doesn't want to be just some kind of ivory tower leader over our lives. No, he wants to be, he wants to have a personal connection with us, a family connection with you and I, that we get to be children of the king, children of the most high God. That's all God's desire that we would be part of his family and have him as king over our lives. When you think of the story of Jesus, you know, when Jesus is, in the Bible, Jesus is depicted as the, as the lamb of God. Well, when you think about a lamb, you usually think of, a, of an animal that's pretty weak. And Jesus went to the cross suffered and died on the cross for us. He suffered as a a sacrificial lamb. The Bible also describes that he is like a lion, the lion of Judah. So he came the first time as the lamb, but he will return as the lion. The, The Bible describes it, that in the future, Jesus will come back. He will return as a lion. The suffering servant will become the conquering king. And in this season, God shows his great grace towards us. You know, he, he, he deliberately leaves time so that people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue can actually accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, become part of the family, become representatives of God as well in this world, and he gives us grace so that we could bring as many people along into his kingdom until Jesus returns. If you weren't here at the, um, at the, during the Thursday, the um, all Leaders Night, I, I, talked, to you, I talked a, little bit, talked a little, bit, little bit more about that, what that means, that God actually is king and that he wants that kingship to be restored. You know, he shows grace in this season, but he will return as judge on the earth. Zechariah 14 describes it like this. It's verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, all those rebellious nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives. Then the Lord my God will come and the Holy One's with him. On that day, on that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light, on that day, living water shall flow f- out from Jerusalem. Amazing. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And here it comes. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. How many of you are longing for God to be king over the whole earth? I'm longing for the day that Jesus is king over this whole earth. You know what, Genesis chapter 19, if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to look it up, chapter 19 in the book of, Genesis, uh, in the book of Revelation. It describes what it looks like when, when Jesus returns and when he will, will, will really return as king to this world. And it says this in verse 1. And this is John um, who wrote down the, the, the book of Revelation, which is an apocalyptic book. It has a lot of, you know, pretty interesting, weird, you know, images of what go, what's going to take place, and we're not going to get into detail with, any, with, with most of those, but we're going to look at, you know, how the future uh, will look like, basically, as Jesus returns. So John, he, he says this, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. I'm so thankful that God's judgments are true and just. just. He's the judge over the whole earth. And you know what? When when you think about that whole idea that God is the judge, what he's going to do is he's he's going to make an end to everything that hinders love in this world. Anything that's in the way of God's love filling this whole earth. That's what's going to, to happen right here. That's what he describes right here. Verse 2, for he has judged the great prostitute. Now you wonder, who is the great prostitute? Well, it actually speaks here about Babylon again. When you look at the the book of Revelation, it it talks about Babylon, which was kind of like a code word for, for Rome, which was the dominant power in those days. And again, we go back to that world system. Babel, Babylon, Egypt, Rome, you know, all of those, they're... They symbolize the world system, the anti-God, anti-Eden, anti-Zion, anti-Christ world system that we have right here that basically enslaves people, which makes us work harder and harder and harder. It's a, it's a terrible taskmaster to be, to be under. It keeps people enslaved. It's like when you look at our society today, everybody's like busy, right? If you ask somebody how he's doing, what is the number one question, answer you'll get to the question? Busy. It means that you're under a yoke that you're so like under this taskmaster that you don't even know how to actually find peace again how to find rest again in your life we gotta come from under the influence of that taskmaster it's a system also that calls evil good and good evil that's exactly what you see happening in the world around us that that evil things are called good and the other way around it's bad, and it also depicts God as this evil taskmaster. They, they basically blame God of everything that it, it's doing itself, and this is like the, the worst manipulation of, of what's going on in this world system because it points the finger at God. Yeah, see, God is a mean God. God hates these people. He hates those people. No, it's not God. God loves everyone, and God has an amazing plan. He wants us to be part of his family. He wants us to be restored. He wants us to be made whole, but the world system basically points the finger no no he's a bad God you don't want to have anything to do with him so they turn the whole thing on they flip the whole thing around and calls what's evil good and what's good evil it's bad verse 3 once more they cried out hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever and ever from the city which is basically called the great prostitute and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And hallelujah means praise Yahweh, praise God. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. I just love that picture that the Lord God Almighty reigns. God will reign as king over the whole earth. And no matter what people say, that the churches are going empty or other things are happening in this world and that it's only getting worse, no, God will return. And Jesus will return to this world. He will return as king. And He will be king over this whole earth. Because this word is true. (laughs) Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I love that, what it says here. The Bible describes the the church, and I said it before, but the church is not an institution, not an organization, it's not a building, it's the people, it's the ecclesia, it's the people of God called out from every nation and tribe and tongue. We're family. And here you see that um, the bride, the church, it has its own responsibility to make itself ready for the for the marriage supper of the Lamb, for the for the wedding that will take place between Jesus and his bride. He's preparing us for that. And of course he gives us grace and power to make ourselves ready. Because we all have a responsibility to, to focus our eyes on Jesus, to, to start to live holy lives and, and everything like that. And this is not, a, not about a performance-based thing. No, this is about a relationship because we love God so much and because of the power and the grace that He pours out in our lives, we're actually able to live in a way that pleases Him. But, but that's really what He wants, you know, that, that we make ourselves ready for the return of the King, for, for that moment where, you know, that marriage supper of the Lamb will, will take place. We make ourselves ready to meet the groom. And we all have our responsibility in that. And verse 8 says this, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I, I was thinking about that a little bit. You know, what, what does John mean with that, the uh, righteous deeds of the saints? And I believe that this has everything to do with demonstrating our faith. You know when Jesus saves us when we become a new creation when when we are accepted by him through his grace and and when we put our faith in him none of that is work work related we don't get saved because of our performance we don't get saved because of our works we don't get saved because of any of those demonstrations that we what we do but when we have a relationship with him when when his love flows in our hearts we don't want to do anything else but show our love to back to God but also to the people around us in the church and outside of the church so the righteous deeds of the Saints are are like the deeds that we do out of our relation that flow out of our relationship with God we have we're saved by grace through faith and works will follow we're not saved by works this is a very important thing for us to to realize and so we demonstrate our faith we demonstrate our love for and our loyalty to Jesus and verse 9 says this, and the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I just think it's so powerful what it says here. Because if you look at the, at the Gospels, you see here that Jesus, right before he got arrested, right before he, he goes to the cross, he has one last meal with his disciples Last Supper. You know, the, we all know the famous pictures. Get me a, 20, get me a table for 24 people and everybody's going to sit on one side. It's pretty interesting pictures always. Oh, I always think that's funny. But there's only three people who get it. You'll get it afterwards, okay? But when Jesus celebrates communion with his disciples there, when he... Takes of the bread and takes uh, takes of the wine and and they share it together he he points forward to to another supper he points forward to this supper the marriage supper of the lamb he basically says hey i want to prepare you for something that's coming you are invited to god's table you are part of his family because when we're when we're at this table we're part of his family this is so powerful for us to realize you know church is so much more than a, a thing you do on sunday morning no we get to be a part of god's family and central to god's family is the table that's why jesus did this with his disciples that's why revelation 19 paints the picture of the future you know and if you don't like family you got a problem because you will you have a huge family your brothers and sisters right i think i talked about it last week that the person you know that's how how more conservative churches sometimes use it you know well here's my brother my sister you know we actually are brothers and sisters Bible is very clear about it. We're, we're family. And there's a stable waiting for us. And that's why we decided as a, as a team also that, that we are going to re-inst- reinstitute communion in our church on a weekly basis. We, we were doing it on a weekly basis maybe a year ago or so, and we felt like, hey, this has become too individualized. It's too much about me and, me and Jesus. And we're like, no, no, no. Com- communion is actually a community thing. We do this together. We, we want to make sure that when we gather together around the table of communion, that we actually celebrate our differences and celebrate our unity in Jesus, that we are one in Christ. So from next week onwards, we're going to have communion available every Sunday. Not every Sunday we're going to give a whole lot of attention to it. We do it every time when there's, it's fitting. We'll do it. We'll make sure to talk about it and to, to f- explain the deeper meaning of that. But it's so amazing that you can gather around a table, not just with your friends or family, but also with people that you don't know that look different than you are. Because I'm so thankful that this church is a diverse church, that it has people from Africa and Asia and Netherlands and Americas and all around the world. And we gather together in one place and we're one people where there's no disunity here. There's no brokenness here because we're in Jesus. We're one in Jesus Christ and the table, the communion table, celebrates celebrates that so we will have it on a weekly basis in church but I also want to tell you that we're going to encourage you challenge you maybe even to also take communion into your home because when you look at the picture of the old of the early church in in Acts chapter 2 you see that uh, the, the early church they went from home to home and they broke bread they had communion in their homes they celebrated it there, and, and, and actually on a weekly, maybe even on a daily basis sometimes. And they did it on purpose so that they would always be reminded of what Jesus had done for them, that he died on the cross, that his blood was shed, that his body was broken for us, that Jesus would also return one day, because it's, it serves as a constant reminder that Jesus is going to return in the future. So we got to actually... Put communion back in our homes. You know what? This is actually a biblical thing. That it, This happened in, in Acts chapter 2 and actually in the first couple of centuries of church history. This is what the believers did. They celebrated communion in their homes because they, they knew they were family. They were family of, the family of God. They gathered together around the table. So we want to help you in these coming few weeks and months um, show you what it means and how you do it because it's actually not a difficult thing. And, and as you have communion in your home, it's actually a, you prepare your family or your friends that, that you share your table with for the day that's coming when Jesus is going to return. It's a constant reminder that Jesus is coming back and of everything that he's done for you. And so we can, can be so thankful for that. I mean, I remember when my wife and I, when we started doing this for the first time with, with our, our, our boys. In the beginning, there was a little bit of pushback. Now, do we, are we doing communion again today? But right now, it's like it becomes a normal thing. And, and if I ask them, you know, what it means, they can actually explain the gospel based on, based on the, the bread and the grape juice because we don't give them wine. They're nine years old. Don't worry. They get to explain the gospel because we're doing this on a weekly basis. And you know what? One day when they grow up and maybe make some decisions that are not so smart, you know, and sometimes teenagers do that, and thank God we're, you know, still far away. But if they do, they will always be reminded back of those days that they had communion with their, with their family. And how amazing it was to experience God in our home, to experience Jesus' presence in our home. Man, this is going to revolutionize your family life. I really believe it. And you know what? It's nothing special. It's nothing that we invented. It's always been there in the Bible. It's always been there part of God's plan, even in the Old Testament. So why would we try to reinvent the wheel? Why do we need to try to improve on the things that God has already ordained in his his word? But we'll tell you more about that in the future. It's awesome stuff, really awesome stuff. Verse 9, second part, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So basically the angel, um, John thought he was, he was, he was God himself, but he, but he wasn't. For the testimony of Jesus the spirit of prophecy. that I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He judges and makes war. Who's on the Who's on the horse? On the white horse? Jesus. And the picture that we have of Jesus in art is like this softy Jesus. Have you ever been been you know seen those you know those, those paintings where Jesus is it's like this pale, you know, blue-eyed Scandinavian long-haired Jesus? How many of you ever saw that? That's not our Jesus. Jesus is a man of war. He's no softy. You know, he, he's a conquering king. That's how the Bible describes him. It says this in verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head there are many diadems, kind of like crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. You know what? There's something special about the name of Jesus, about Hashem, about Yahweh. Yahweh saves, because Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. God saves. There's something special about that name and and we 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 can be so thankful that we know his name that we know the name of jesus and and how he is god and how he has his amazing plan with our lives verse 13 he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of god in the greek it says logos which means word and you know what if you look at the new testament it talks about the logos by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. It was created by Jesus, basically Hebrews says, by the Logos. John 1, verse 1 through 4 and then 14 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and who's the Word? Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So He's divine. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth so this passage shows us that Jesus was already there like at the beginning Jesus wasn't a created being he was always already there as too often we think that the story of Jesus starts in the manger or even with the like, with the, when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus was already there. He's been there from the beginning of time. And it's so clear here. Everything was, everything that you see created in this created world, is by the Word of God. It's through Jesus. And The story in Revelation 19 continues in verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were followed. they following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Aren't you thankful that we still have an opportunity to respond to him? That all the nations of the world who turn away from him still have an opportunity to respond to him and actually become part of God's family until he returns as the conquering king. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings lord of lords the king he's lord that's who jesus is when i've looked a little bit more at at some references of what's going on right here he has his the name written on his robe but he also had it written on his thigh and when somebody sits on a horse basically eye level will be what's here on the thigh right so you could easily see the name king of kings lord of lords but hey this is actually the one we were waiting for this is actually the one who who will uh, who will usher in the kingdom of god on a global scale there's something else to it with the thigh if you notice one story in the bible of of abram We already talked about abram and how God decided to work through him in in, in creating this nation, the nation of Israel as we know it today, Um, God's people. They have a special place in in the Bible. But Abraham and Sarah, his wife Sarah, they weren't able to get children together. And the promise was that he and Sarah would get a son. But before that, um, oh, yeah, so... um, so after after time he um, he actually get a child and his name is Isaac son that's called Isaac and and they're like they're very careful to pick out the right wife for their son. I know some of your parents you would love to do that for your sons. Those were different days. Sometimes this is not even a bad thing. Just saying. So Isaac had to find a wife and particularly a wife not from the area where they lived because area where they lived there was a lot of idolatry and they didn't want to have that you know that that idolatrous influence in their family it had to be somebody that they they could trust so he so he asks his servant and he basically tells him to go and look for a wife back where Abraham came from and that this odd thing happens He, he says to his servant well place your hand on my thigh as as a promise basically why would he put his hand on the thigh of Abraham this is like the closest place that that is still not too awkward to Abraham's reproductive organ I'm sorry I have to tell this so basically when the servant did that it was like you know he was made aware of the fact that hey this is this has everything to do with my with abram's posterity with the with the people that will that will you know with the nation of israel that would come into being as a result of that and and i'm basically swearing by my posterity this will all go well so he puts his hand on the thigh and you see the same thing happening again on his thigh is written king of kings lord of lords in other words god wants us to be a part of his kingdom he wants us to be a part of he wants us to be subjects of his kingdom but he does it through family because this represents his posterity jesus is spiritual posterity we can be children sons and daughters of the most high god he's inviting you and i into his family to his own family which means that sometimes you and i we make mistakes and we think, well, God must, but certain, certainly but right now, he must kick us out of, you know, out of the church, out of a relationship with, with him, but he's our father. He's not going to do that. He's not going to disinherit you. He loves you. But he's inviting you back into the relationship. He's inviting you into a family relationship. He rules through family relationship, not through power games or through manipulation or any of that. He rules his love. I believe that that's something that God wants to remind you of today and we read this verse in Revelation 19 verse 9 that says this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guess what? We're all invited. We're all invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is inviting you in. Maybe you've already made the decision said, hey, Lord, yes, I'm yours. I want to be loyal to you, Jesus. I want, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my king. I want, I want to be part of your family. And Maybe you're here today and you've never made the decision to become part of his family. And, and today in your heart you could make that same decision as well. He is inviting you in. And as he invites you in, he's sending you out to represent him, to invite others into his family. Because God wants his family to grow with your friends, your family members that are far from God at this moment. He wants to have the largest families possible here on the earth. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. God, we come to you, Lord, right now. We thank you for your presence, your love. God, it's so amazing to see that you're a God who wants family. You're not some distant, remote God that sits in His ivory tower, ready to beat us up when we make a mistake. No, you're you're a father, Abba Father is. So Scriptures tell, uh, call you, Lord. And we're so thankful that we can be a part of Your family today, Lord. And God, we we just look forward to what's going to happen in the future. That Your kingdom of righteousness and will be manifested. will be will be. Will be founded on the whole earth, Lord, when you return. And God, we we just want to pray, Lord, that all of us will be ready for that day. That we just go after you and we pledge our loyalty to you, Jesus. That it's you over and against every other authority, over and against any other God, over and against any other thing that we long for and go after that it's just you, Jesus, who's number one in our lives. That we truly can say that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that everything else that we so long after that we just that you just added to us. God, allow us to be a God first people here. God number one, Jesus number one in our lives. And God, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <laughs> Bye.